When people start making money or when they start feeling rich through property, one of the key things that happens is you go out and buy cars or you start improving your lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that. It's all about the serviceability. So some big ticket item, cars, car loans. We get sold on the way, at least particularly if you've got a job. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are talking about part two of key life decisions that's going to impact your investment journey. Now in part one, we talked about first property, first home buyers, principal place of residence, over investing, rent vesting, using guarantors, buying properties with relatives or friends, getting married, having kids. Second episode it is packed with information around changing jobs. How do you manage those transitions? How do you get cars, put kids through you know, private schools, student loans, study loans, moving overseas, downsizing, moving in with parents, renting your own place while claiming principal place of residence benefits. All of these are the information that we are going to talk about in this episode today. So stay tuned till the very end, getting all the golden nuggets. Thank you for listening to us today. Okie dokie then. So we've talked about living together. We've talked about children. The other big life change would be changing jobs. There are various different scenarios when you talk about changing jobs, right? And, you know, people who are working in a PAYG income or pay-as-you-go income, let's play out various different scenarios and we'll talk about various different scenarios and go into a bit more detail. One is about changing jobs in your own industry. And so you are an analyst and you are still working as an analyst and you get a better opportunity and you jump. Nothing wrong with that. That's fine. The bank still looks at the continuous you know, job that you went from one to another. Even if you're made redundant, then you find a job two months later, the bank would still, in the same industry, the bank would still see that continuity in your jobs. So you know, usually those are fine. Where changing jobs becomes really tricky is where you're going from one industry to another industry on a new job, or you're going from a PAYZ income to a sole trader income like a contractor ABN, or you're going from a sole trader income to a company income. Again, people think that, oh, it's just ABN to ABN, it shouldn't really matter. And so all of these instances basically puts a reset to your serviceability, and a lot of people don't know this. So if you're going from a PAYG to a sole trader, the bank looks at it as, even if it's the same industry, the bank looks at it as you have started your own business, and typically there is 12 months to 24 months of delay or stop that the bank would apply to you in order to you getting access to any borrowing or any debt or any equity refinance per se, even that. Even if you own a debt already or you own a house, getting that refinance becomes quite difficult as well. You know, So these days, some of these banks have started you know, looking at some of these circumstances and have provided some of the exceptions. And of course, there are lenders out there who might charge you a bit of risk premium to provide you a product. But Majority of the banks would see that as you doing a separate job if it's a new industry or a separate business if it's a sole trader income. And even if you're going from a sole trader to a business income, like a company that you've set up or a trust that you've set up, and now you're going to just change structures running the same business, uh, the bank would ask for 12 months of financials or 24 months of financials in order to basically service anything that you do or you know, put any boring that you're going to request from these banks. Yeah. 
And so, I mean, and talking talking about particularly sort of running your own business, as keep in mind, make sure you start to pay yourself as soon as possible. And and I know this is sort of easier said than done, especially when you're building a business. But it's really important that you, you know, have an ABN with GST so that there are options for you. So I'm not saying that you can never borrow. Like there are low dot options available, right? But there are going to be certain requirements of uh, to qualify for that as well. So again, it's all it all comes down to the planning, you know. Definitely, if you're if you're working in a job and you've got these longer term plans of exiting that particular job, right? Have at least sort of a two year plan for that, so that you can set up the structures so that when and and if you've got investment properties that are giving you that income in in that other entity, then at least you sort of go, I'm not necessarily going to kill my serviceability. It's just going to look a bit different, but at least you make that transition from, you know, working for someone in PAYG to another another sort of income. So have that plan in place. Everything's about planning. It's, it's incredible, but it's true. Like, uh, otherwise, we're going to be living day by day, and then we sort of have more challenges that pop up. Yeah. And some of these things are so simple, right? I always say to people, you know, if you are planning, if you are have an entrepreneurial bone in you, just keep an active ABN. It's not going to cost you anything. It's just, you know, zero basses that you have to submit. You can do it yourself or you can ask the accountant to do it. It's such a simple thing to do. There is nothing wrong with that. There is nothing illegal about keeping an active ABN. You know, you are there in anticipation that you're going to run the business, right? And so, you know, the longer the ABN, the better it is, you know. There is this concept of shell companies. I don't know, a lot of people would potentially don't know about it, but a lot of successful investors, a lot of high net worth investors always have, you know, what they call it is shelf companies, the companies that sits in the background, does nothing, but it just remains active and it's brought out for putting your name or a new business to it just to show that, you know, this business has been running for two years, three years, four years, right? So. A lot of people are scared of opening up companies and saying, oh, I'm going to pay an extra $500 to a tax accountant or an accountant to hold these things. When you are thinking of running a property investment as a business, then these are not expenses. These are investments. And you would need these as you grow your portfolio quite significantly and quite successfully. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, speak to your accountant, speak to your broker. And if they if they know each other even better, so that they know what your plans are, it's part of your A team. We talked about this in in other episodes. Like build that A team and and people who are going to be advocating for you and know know what your long term long term goals are. What's next after this? Like change jobs, you start a new business. Then what are the other big things that we need to be uh, aware of in terms of impacting our investment and project? Naturally. When people start making money or when they start feeling rich through property, you know, one of, one of the key things that happens is, you know, you go out and, you know, buy cars or, you know, you start improving your lifestyle. There's nothing wrong with that. You're improving your lifestyle by putting kids through private schools, for example, or, you know, student loans or study loans. I did my MBA, you know, while I was investing. It was, you know, one of the best investments that that I did, but one of the most bloody expensive investment costed me about $110,000 just to do an MBA, right? And so how do you go about navigating through these things, which are 
a hit to the discretionary expenses and how do you ensure that you navigate through these without impacting your serviceability? Million dollar question. Mm, it's all about the serviceability. So some big ticket items, cars, car loans, or novated leases, right? We get sold on novated leases, particularly if you've got a job and if your your company that you're working with has this novated lease and you're excellent, it's like also the negative gearing thing because you're told you pay, you know, pre-tax dollars and if you're, especially if you're earning too much. Such a sham. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because it affects your services. Serviceability. Serviceability. What is, in your opinion, because we're not giving advice, what is, in your opinion, a better, smarter way of purchasing a car, still being able to buy property, you know, still being able to buy property as well? Since the day I started running business, I've always bought cars on the company names. I've always held credit cards on the company names. It's the easiest way to shift the debt from your own self to a company that is not going to be linked to you, okay? You don't need a fully operating company, you know, even if a business is doing $10,000 a year and if there is a need for the car in that business, you can allocate that car to that business. It's just as simple as that, right? And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of people doing something on the side, a side gig, you know, drive a bloody Uber, you know, register an Uber account and register a car to that, right? There's nothing being ashamed. You don't have to be ashamed of doing something as you are, you know, going through the grant and building your life, right? Or property investment life cycle that you're following through. So using some of these smarter ways to park the cars, the credit cards, student loans, study loans, you know, there are various different ways that you can navigate through a lot of these things without hitting your own personal serviceability all the time, right? I remember when I did my MBA, I actually went to my employer and say, look, you know, you need to pay for this. You know, you need to pay at least 50% of this, right? And so being to that negotiating power, right? You know, don't just take everything on your own go. What I agreed on is, I still remember I got my employer to pay 50% of it. But I said to my employer, how about you pay all of this yourself and I'll pay you back, right? So it does not show up on my hex loans. It does not show up anywhere else, you know? And so I can navigate through the serviceability that way, right? It's, it's, you know, as you were saying, it's all about planning. It's all about being proactive, about thinking that, how is this going to impact when a lender looks at my bank statement or when the lender looks at, you know, my HEC statements or my tax statements and how are they going to respond, you know, in relation to your, to, to some of these debts that are, you know, unsecured debts that are sitting um, on your balance sheet. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really clever, clever strategy of doing that. I mean, most people, when they're, when they're talking about their student loans, I would say a fair amount of them are not thinking of property investment and so not really even thinking about whether they're hex debt or it's going to impact their serviceability. So if you're listening to this, now you know that strategize. Make sure that you go, oh, I'm aware of that now. Speak to your broker. Brokers make your brokers your friend. And if they're a great broker, they'll be able to tell you what is impacting your serviceability. I mean, we had a situation where... So we have insurance, so you know, our life insurance and uh, all the different types of insurances. And a portion of that that we were paying that was not part of our self-managed super. So it was coming out of our tax dollars. Our finance broker basically said, actually, why don't you, you know, look at whether you can absorb this as part of your your self-managed super because a lot of super does 
cater for uh, insurances and things like that. And so we ended up doing that and it made a big impact on our serviceability. So, you know, if you've got a great broker, they understand all these different levers. It's even, you know, buying, like I said, buying cars, take it out of the Novated Lease. It was a, it was a company car that we were going to be using for meetings anyhow and, and, and going to site. So it was, you know, it, it's being clever about where you allocate those assets, I guess, and expenses. And how about like if someone already has a big hex debt, I think it's called help these days, so this shows how old we are. Help desk, <laughs> help desk, no, hex debt uh, and, and a help debt. And how do they then... Is there anything that they can do that you're aware of that's going to improve their serviceability? Because, you know, say they've already done that before they even got to a job or even thought about buying property. They were just like, I just need to get through university or pay for whatever. I always say to people, and I've, I've been in this one scenario with this particular client where they had the hex debt and it was a big debt that was costing them the serviceability quite a bit. And so this deck was coming out from the pre-income because, you know, HEX, the problem with HEX is that it comes out of your income. You know, you don't have to pay them back. It was basically coming out of the income, which makes it a lot harder to navigate through, right? And so they had the deposit available to them. And, you know, what the way we navigate through this was I said, look, you have this deposit available, which is 20%. That's fine. How about we use a portion of this, this deposit and pay off this debt, Right. And so you get a better serviceability back. We use LMI to your advantage and break these deposit and go back in and buy something and then give you six months and come back and buy something else because your serviceability is more important. We can manage the deposits out of the equation anyway, right? Um, you can use LMI to your advantage to basically jump in because LMI can be tax deductible. You can manage a lot of these things through that side of the equation too. So it's important that you know you find these sort of niches you know, same with credit cards, right? You know, applying the the loan, just close the credit card, apply the loan, get the loan and get another credit card, right? You know, how hard is it? You know, it's not hard. Credit card, that's the worst. Yeah, a lot of people, what they do is, you know, they are scared of closing credit cards. And I was one of them because, you know, you have all of these, you know, Netflixes and insurances on these auto pay and you'll be like, oh, such a pain, you know, changing this. And I still remember a friend of mine, you know, probably about, Six years ago now, and uh, I was having a similar conversation. I was like, oh, who cares, man? Credit card, it's such a pain to close. And he's like, how about you spend an hour of your time listing out all of these things, their username, their account codes and passwords, and basically, you know, keep it saved somewhere. And then every time you change a card, you basically do that. And I'm like, ah, oh, why didn't I think about this? And apparently there are companies now, there are services now which can change everything in one go for all of these direct debits, et cetera, everything. And so, you know, use that, be smart about it, you know, use the points. There's nothing wrong in using credit cards if you do it in a disciplined manner and collect points. I have shit tons of points. I love my points because I get, you know, business upgrades all the time. But, you know, don't be silly about using credit cards to run your life. Use credit cards to manage expenses, create a bit of cash flow for yourself. Oh. And, and credit cards, admittedly, I only have them for my business. But again, it's for it's for collecting points. We don't have any personal credit cards. We've got debit cards. We make sure that we've got money money in, in 
in the account because for that reason, like, you know, as disciplined as you may want to be, there's always the temptation to go, oh, we'll pay it off. We'll pay it off. It's fine. It's fine. You know, and we've always paid off our credit cards because we were disciplined. But then that that $2,000 limit that we had still impacted our serviceability. So if you want to be able to max out and be able to accumulate as much as possible, like look at all the different ways to be able to maximize this, this serviceability, reduce your expenses. I don't think you can outsource any of your children. So there'll still be, you know, there'll be still an expense as long as they're dependents. But there are other things that, that you can that you can definitely do. I think private school fees are an interesting one as well, right? So, you know, a lot of a lot of parents who have their kids going through private school, it's it's a big dent to your serviceability. It can almost shave off nearly because it's almost like thirty to forty thousand dollars a year of your disposable income, which basically means that it would shave off close to about two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars in serviceability in some instances, right? So it's a big, big debt. And one of my clients did a really crazy thing and I still remember it. And again, I I don't say this out loud that, you know, I don't condone it or I don't say go out and do this, but he paid the school fee upfront in advance through a credit card and then closed that credit card as soon as he paid it off. And then voila, was it showing up in his profile? Like, wow. Okay. <laughs> and so it's, it's a very interesting trick, right? So. Right. Obviously he still had to pay the credit card, but. Of course. Yeah. hundred percent. And so, yeah. Credit card was showing up. Ah, okay. And then he got his, all his points as well. Yep. Yes, correct. And so it was an interesting trick to do and use. And so you said, okay, I've paid my credit card, I've closed my credit card, and that was the story he sold to the bank. Whereas, you know, the trick that he played was he paid the credit, closed the credit card before he paid the school fees. And can you do this every time? No, potentially not. But, you know, there are ways to be creative around a lot of these expenses. Some of these are which you can't bypass like school fees, et cetera. How do you go around navigating some of these things, especially when you are ready to buy a property? You need to almost think six to eight months ahead because that is the that is the life that comes into focus from a bank's perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The last one, um, and this is something quite new. I've been hearing and a lot of my clients have started moving overseas. You know, I have a client who moved to, you know, uh, KSA, Saudi Arabia. One client moved to Dubai few clients move back to Malaysia, Singapore. So there is heaps of them. And it's it's not that they don't have jobs. They're still working for Shell and companies. It's just the beauty of, you know, working hybrid these days where, you know, you can relocate and work somewhere else. Bali. Everyone's Bali. Yeah, everyone is Bali. Yes, Bali is another one, right? I think a lot of this is because of, you know, the tax havens that are created outside Australia, right? You don't have to pay taxes. Your disposable income goes up. You know, you get a housemate and a driver and... You know, you can travel more and, you know, there's a lot of perks in you moving overseas, of course. If we're going, we're going to Bali, Mox. So the question here becomes, and this is coming in from personal experience, right? Every time you go overseas, even though your income is Australian income and you're working in Australian dollars for an Australian company, the banks would shave your income by almost 20 to 30% right away. Right? even though it's the same money that you're getting in overseas. And so I always say to people, use your serviceability before you go overseas because that serviceability is going to disappear. I, I've never, I, I haven't done that before. So what, what's the reasoning behind that? 
from a bank's perspective, look, you know, you're not paying taxes, but you might decide to come back and, you know, that's the 30% tax that you would pay. And so that's how they naturally risk, mar- you know, they provide a risk margin towards it. The other reason also is that, you know, it might be in a different currency, US dollars to AUD, for example. And so there might be fluctuations within the dollars. So, you know, they have to allow for some of these fluctuations. And, you know, that's why they shave that income quite, you know, aggressively as well. But it's more serviceability. It's it's borrowing capacity, but it doesn't necessarily mean it just means you can only borrow you can borrow less. But the truth is if you've got massive amount of income, then you can just keep paying it off. That's okay. Yes. Yes. The 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 thing that happens is especially when you're going overseas, like and I'll talk about this particular client who went to Dubai, you know, they were actually going in and making more money, but they were getting less loan from the bank or less debt from the bank because they moved outside, right? It's almost like it was a double whammy that they could borrow less than what they could borrow here while they were getting paid more there. So clearly the drop was more than 30% in this particular scenario. And so while you know that your income is going to be higher when you move overseas and you would have more disposable income available to yourself, you know, you can be in that sort of, you know, increase your risk appetite and go and overinvest slightly more because you know that you can, you know, manage that overinvestment anyway because you're getting this massive jump of you're not paying any taxes, right? And so people don't proactively think about this. Understand that as soon as 180 days passes of you being outside of Australia, everything becomes non-resident, right? So it's, it again, speak to your tax accountant, speak to your broker as to how do you manage around some of these things. Well, you when you have the assets and you're non-resident now, you know, what happens to those assets, you know, those assets stay, still can stay in Australia, but you cannot come out and buy anything new because you might trigger FIRB or non-resident taxes, etc. All of those nuances that shouldn't happen because you're still, you know, permanent resident, etc. Right? That's definitely an interesting one with everyone buying around, moving overseas and residing in different areas. I would say the last one I'd love to for us to cover is towards retirement age when we start to downsize and this notion of going, well, I can access my self-managed super now, so I'm over 65 or whatever, I can access my self-managed super. Can I buy my own property out of this self-managed super? Well, after, are you talking about once they've hit the preservation age or privilege age? I think that's what they're, that's the name is called. Well, you can do whatever you want with that money typically, right? So yeah, you can, you know, downgrade, you can upgrade, you can go on holidays, you you know, you choose whatever you want to do with it. Ultimately, you know, there is income tax tests that the Centrelink poses on you for your pension. So if you have too much asset, I think, you know, those thresholds definitely change. Of course, speak to the financial planner or financial advisor in getting, you know, personalized a response to some of these questions but with the money you could typically do whatever you want but you know a lot of people try to navigate through some of these circumstances because they end up losing their pension or their tax brackets changes if they are not to that certain age and if they try to borrow it before that you know because technically you can get that money back get that money out anytime after 60 but you have to hit that age of you getting it tax free you know there are different various different stages I think this question is a lot more so hail focused than me focused, you know, when you talk about SMSF and the SMSF advises. So, but it, it, you know, it is one of those things where, you know, you need to plan and think about these things through upfront 
when you are uh, thinking about downsizing or retiring or buying, you know, properties through SMSF. Yeah, absolutely. And just be aware if you are over 60 and just check, you know, with your financial advisor and all of that as well. Like when you sell your PPOR, there is a portion of it that you can put into, you can possibly put into your self-managed super, which becomes a, I was going to say, uh, you can put a lump sum amount into it within excuse me, a, a specific time period. So speak to your super advisor about that, depending on the time in your life. Obviously, if you can do that and, and, and there are certain frameworks and guidelines about how much you can put in and when you can put it in and all of that. So just be absolutely aware, but also know that these sorts of strategies are available to you if you are at that stage in your life of retirement, downsizing, creating self-managed super as well. The last but not the least, this is about moving in with your parents. You hear people a lot about moving out or moving in, right? Or renting your own space. So definitely a key milestone for a lot of youngsters when they are, when they've just acquired a job, you know, it's a decent paying job, say 70, 80, $90,000. And, uh, and they have the first decision that they make is, oh, I'm going to move out and, you know, go out and get my own place. And I always say to these people that if you have a deposit saved at that time, because you should be saving, right? If you're living with your parents and if you have a good discipline, you should be saving somewhere between, you know, five, six thousand dollars a month, right? If you are paying eighty or ninety thousand dollars a year, you know, for example. And so if you have been living with your parents for say two years and if you have a decent deposit of eighty to hundred thousand dollars saved, before moving out, buy a house. Even if you don't want to live there at least buy the house because that serviceability will very quickly disappear as soon as you start renting a place and that disposable income basically starts going down there. And so every time a person makes that decision, they are always better off than, you know, getting into a rental property or moving out of the parents and then using the disposable income to pay the rent rather than buying a house. And we're not encouraging you to stay with your parents till you're 45, right? It's... T- <laughs> However, the switch side is that you might have parents, older, uh, older and elderly parents, who may want to downsize and move in with you, like you build a granny flat and so on and so forth. So just be, you know, these are always different ways to, to be able to look at how that looks like. I know for ourselves, um, my parents built an extension to our house and so that we could, you know, we could look after them, they could look after us, and it's a cultural thing. It's not, you know, we don't mind. But we're seeing more of this because people are more open to sharing their space with extended family because of cost of living as well. So I think these, you know, there's always ways to make, make things work. And if you're, you know, you're sharing the expenses of a property and there's food and everything else, like, oh. It works, it works quite well for us, but doesn't necessarily work for everyone. But it is something that allows you as a family, not just yourselves, to be able to move forward as well. Definitely. Look, my parting words would be that, you know, life evolves. And of course, you know, as you mature, you would make better choices as you go along the way. Some of these choices are experiences of others that you can, you know, use in your life right now and today's term. 
but have a property investment strategy that works around your life and not make your life work around these strategies. Uh, it's important that you live your life to the fullest rather than trying to overinvest and get your life to fit into your investment strategy, right? So you're doing all of this to improve your lifestyle. You're not doing this to, you know, make your life miserable. So it's important to find that good balance between the two. Absolutely. Have a plan. I think we've stressed that enough um, all, all through this episode. Have a plan, have a strategy. If you don't have one, obviously speak to your advisors, a professional in that space so that you can come up with a plan for how you get there. Definitely. Thank you for listening to us. Take care, stay safe, keep smiling, keep investing. This is Sharon Moss checking out. Adios. Take care, everyone. <laughs>